You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Today, my guest is Carolyn Newell, an English teacher and international educator with an active involvement in digital technology, inequality, and teacher professional development. In this episode, we find out more about Carolyn's early observations and experiences in India, Singapore, and Australia, especially those relating to racism, inequality, reading, and literacy. Carolyn offers some personal and professional reflections on the lessons learned from quick adaptation and response by teachers during the pandemic and the lessons that might be applied in a post-pandemic world. We explore English literature and some fundamental English skills, including reading, writing, speaking, listening and viewing, and how students use literature, film, television, live texts and other media as a vehicle for learning skill development and for developing a deeper understanding of themes such as racism. Carolyn enthusiastically offers insights and opinions on a range of current and emerging issues from teacher comfort and competence in using digital technology through to managing the digital divide observed in areas such as inadequate student access to the internet. We also chat about student neurodiversity, diverse approaches to knowing and learning, how to best support out-of-field English teachers, and fostering a respect for teachers and for teaching as a profession. Here's my conversation with Carolyn Newell. Hello, Carolyn. Good to see you again. Yeah, hi, Mark. Thanks for um, bringing me on. It is good to see you again. So I thought we could find out more about your background. Uh, I understand that you're a former English teacher. Would that be right? But I, I guess I'm Ooh, interested absolutely. in the rest. <laughs> I want to find out how, well, more about, you know, what you were doing in that regard earlier in your life and then, you know, how it all developed. Okay. Um, well, it's, um, it, it's, I guess it's semi-interesting. I was um, born in India. My father was a shipbuilder from a Scottish shipbuilder. And so the, the, sh- the shipyards in the Clyde in Scotland were where all the British battleships and everything and a lot of um, ships that were sent to America, they were all built um, on the Clyde between sort of Glasgow and and. And that's what he did. He trained during the war. Um, And that took him first to India, uh, where I was born, and then later to Singapore, where I did all my primary primary education. So my brother and I, that's where we spent those sort of formative years. Um, But then, and I mean, it was, it was great. You know, it's, I assumed everybody did it that way. Um, but on the way to Australia, because mum's family had all migrated here in the 60s, um, we took a visit to, back to India. And I was 12, 11 and a half maybe, so I was short. 
And I realise looking back that a child's view of the world is significantly different to an adult's view just because of height. Um, so I was confronted by um, all these not just images but actual um, children, uh, some eaten away with leprosy, others um, some form of um, disability or uh, whatever, and they were at not that big a difference along the streets begging because that was the only way um, they could uh, get an income for their families at all. And it had an enormous effect on me because I couldn't get my head around this. I couldn't understand why. This was the city I'd been born in. Many of these children would have been the same age as me or younger, and it, I couldn't work out what was going on. You know, what? why does this happen? Um, and that stayed with me. It always has always stayed with me. Um, when we came to Australia, I became aware of racism um, for the first time. Um, even living in um, in Singapore, I can, I mean, if we had spoken badly to another, an adult or shown any disrespect to an adult, regardless of their colour or what, um, my dad would have knocked us sideways. It's just, you, just, you know, there was no, nothing to, I could get the idea that some people were better than others. Um I did come to understand the idea of colonialism and privilege later, but um, I wasn't, um, I didn't understand this racism thing. So it was the 60s, um, black and white television, no internet, limited coverage of what was going on overseas. So um, even though at that time it was at the peak of the civil rights movement in the, in the U.S., I don't know that I was aware of that, um, but I was very aware of this thing called racism. And what, and what were you um, doing? Like how old were you and where were you living and what were you sort of, were you still uh, at school or had you started university? Uh, I was 12, 12 or 13, um, 12 or 13 at a time when there was absolutely no possibility of looking at university because I was a girl. Um, but the other interesting thing was that nobody else in our family read. I was an, I was a avid reader all ever since I could read. I, I think you, I read. What did you used to read? Um, what, what, what were some of your favourites? Well, I remember reading Jane Eyre in Scotland, in Singapore. So I must have been maybe 10. And then when we came to Australia, I um, we must have had a really good school library because I don't know otherwise how I would have found these books. My parents certainly wouldn't have. Um, and I remember writing a story for English, of course, that got a double A with lots of pluses. Um and I was really proud of it. And I gave it to my dad to read. And all he could say was, um, 
Can't you write about happier things? <laughs> what had you written about? about it was a ra- about racism. So I had read things like Cry the Beloved Country by Alan Patton, Black Like Me by um, ha- John Howard Griffin, and Go Tell It on the Mountain, which was one of James Baldwin's. And I was like 12, 13 at this time. Um, but I was a voracious reader. Um, and so that's where I um, picked it up, I guess. Um, it was also, it, interestingly, it's also the reason I came rather late to the feminist movement uh, because my brain was only capable of one's fixation at a time. And I saw the feminist, the racist one as being most important to me. Um, but, of course, then life happened. Um, I left school, uh, got a jo- got jobs. Then, thanks to Gough Whitlam, went back to school at 23 after I was divorced and did year 12 and got my BA. And then I went to work in film and radio and theatre just over a decade, just under a decade, and then I had twin boys and thought, mm, this is not going to work. I had a BA, so I went back and got my teaching, uh, graduate teaching diploma. Uh, got it at Melbourne Uni because they were the only university that would let me do double English. I wasn't interested in teaching anything else. It was just that because that's all I knew. Um, and so, what yeah. What was it I- about? What was it about that particular subject that, you know, resonated? Um, I I guess, A, because I love literature. Um, I'd done at that time in Victoria, 100% of your subject, your grading was on that final three-hour exam. Um, And I had chosen to do English and literature, which at that time were two separate subjects. And I loved literature and I looked at all the others and thought I really am not that interested in any of them. So I didn't want to, even media studies was even where I definitely didn't want to teach that. Um, So, yeah, I did a double English method and then did some um, CRT work because my boys were, when the boys were four, I, st- I started a theology degree, which I did part-time over a long period of time. Again, from a literary critical point of view, that was where my interest was. Um, uh, so then I went overseas, uh, moved to Queensland, took the boys to Queensland because they were ready for high school and our, the local one where we were at the time was not a good idea. Um, and I think my son, Jeremy, had a bit of a, fascination with the dark side. So I thought it might be a good idea to move them out of inner city Melbourne. Um, We went to Warwick in Queensland um, where I met uh, Judy, who is now my business partner. Um, So then I went overseas. For the year the boys finished school, I was still in Warwick, which is a long way away from anywhere really. Um, And I wanted to get to Brisbane, but I couldn't get a transfer. So I put my CV online and got offered a number of jobs overseas. So I started by going back to India. Um, Then I spent some time in 
Abu Dhabi in the Middle East and then in Singapore as a teacher consultant with um, CFBT, which is a British education thing. Um, but then I came back uh, 2010, taught in Queensland, and then in year 2011 I moved back to Melbourne and that's where I got a major shock because I was, I, 2011, so 10, 11 years ago, I would have been 56 maybe. And it never occurred to me, it never occurred to me that I would not be able to get a job. And I couldn't. Um, it what was going I, on there then? It was, I was too old. The agency said, you're too expensive because, you know, teaching salaries are generally tied to it experience and time teaching so I was expensive and a school could get two new new grads for the same price as one of me and you can't blame the schools because their budgets were being squeezed all over the place um they did what they could do to um keep their you know school safe um yeah, so that sort of then brought me to that. It's um, what was I going to do? Um, I looked around and it wasn't until 2016 where I thought, you know, I can do something with this um, that will be helpful. And I started to build We Teach Well with my friend Judy from Warwick. And and what's what sort of what's involved with that? Um, so again, we are women of um, limited interests. So we are focusing on English teachers, first language English teachers, not ESL. There is a vast amount of assistance out there for ESL, um, but not so much for first language English. Uh, so we are. At first, we thought we'd just make resources for teachers, but that wasn't going to be, that was going to be too difficult trying to work out pricings and what's the difference if it's overseas. I mean, I'd worked out that this internet thing could be a very big deal and we could use it. Um, so over the pandemic, we, um, we I hate, I, I, I'm going to use the word, and while I'm using the word, I'm going to hate using the word, um, but we pivoted a little. I knew you. I knew yeah. that was going to be the word. <laughs> I knew and, it. And the next one that you'll know when I go through the same thing is innovation. Um, so now uh, the idea is that the we will <clears throat> the the market really is schools and principals, admins who are looking for professional development for their teachers, their English teachers. Um, and we are also doing a coaching program uh, for out-of-field English teachers. Now, I think we've talk about, talked about the out-of-field thing. Yeah, what, does that, what does that mean? What's out-of-field? Yeah, so out-of-field, and it's most... It's most... Um, applicable to English and math, the two subjects that they test on ridiculous NAPLANs are the ones likely to have teachers who never qualified. So 
teacher teaching out of field means that they're teaching a subject area that they never trained in. Um, but as you know, schools have limited budgets and they parents want all these extra offerings of specialist extras which require specialist teachers, um, which means that there's not enough money in the budget to provide specialist English and math teachers in most schools. So those teachers might have a three-quarter, you know, PE teacher might have a three-quarter load and they'll be given an English class to add to their, or a maths class. And um, I think, I'm not sure, I think you might have been on one of the sessions with Ruth, um, who's in Queensland, um, because she said she's been an out-of-field English teacher for 20 years. Um, and so the figures that I found last year, I think it was that over 40% of teachers teaching maths or English didn't have any background training. Um, and I've taught out of field. I've taught out of field twice. Um, and it's hard. You know, I can walk into an English class and it really doesn't matter what we are doing or where the students are at, I can, there is enough stuff in the RAM that I can pull something out if I need it. You know, I can. However, a lot of people wouldn't be able to do that. Well, if they hadn't trained in English, they wouldn't be able to do that. If they had no literature training or actually research um, training in uh, literature and text study, they wouldn't be able to do that. So, therefore, they lose confidence. They get overwhelmed. Their students then don't don't get the greatest results because, for no, I mean, there's, if these teachers were teaching what they knew, they would be fine. Um, and we now we do know that out of field teaching is ticked one box of the reasons why teachers leave the profession early. Yeah. Um, so when we when I set up We Teach Well, it's driving purpose. The thing that is its ultimate why is to reduce educational inequality. And I believe, and there are, is supporting research, that one of the best ways of doing that is to make sure your teachers have everything they need to be confident in their classrooms. No matter where those classrooms are, it's, it's not right. It's not rocket science. You know, if you take care of the teachers and give them everything they need, that is going to work out as better outcomes for students. You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. So with your aim of uh, reducing the inequality for learners via teacher professional learning, what are some of the approaches or strategies? What do you actually do in that, in that area? Okay, so just to sort of fill, fill in because it helps, when I was working overseas, I noticed that many English teachers who I worked with 
didn't have access to the type of professional development that we have here. Um, they And their degree requirements were very different from ours. But by this stage, the internet had arrived and I realised that parents and teachers and students in some of these other countries were able to see what was happening in other places, how English was being taught in other countries. And what um, they began to recognise the gaps in their initial teacher education. So, as I said, I'd sort of imagined that we could do a whole heap of things um, with the internet. And one of the most important being that we could reach teachers without the limits of geography. They, they, you know, teachers often don't get to go to PD sessions because they can't afford, the school can't afford the airfares and the accommodation or everything that went with the PD. Um, so that's when we started to think of what we could do to help teachers um, with that. Now, obviously, I'm speaking as a teacher, and I know that the vast majority of teachers are focused on their students and the students' outcomes. But well, hope, hopefully. <laughs> well, I'd say mostly because the vast majority because it is the vast majority. Um, and But the problem is that teachers' workload has grown so exponentially over the last couple of decades and much of the time has been spent in assessment and reporting and, and other administrivia. And there's nothing a teacher can do about those things. You know, they have to do them and you can't not do them, but their primary focus is still on the students. And that then ends up being the work that teachers take home with them every night, every weekend and every holiday. Uh, so <clears throat> what we wanted to be able to do is offer things that made in that area of how they um, work with their students because that's what matters to them. Okay. Now, I'm not an English. I have a background as a science teacher, so I've kind of just wondering. I'm a bit puzzled. What What do you mean by all of this? What does What are these gaps and what are these... You know, what does a typical English teacher do when they're planning of lessons and that sort of thing? Can you give us some, like an example? Yeah, sure. So standard English pedagogy is covers five areas now. Um, so there's reading, writing, speaking, listening and viewing. We're doing some of those so now. Those, that's right. Those are the skills that are embedded in um, English teacher teaching. Um, and a lot of those are not, I mean, they're specific to English. And we use literature and film and all sorts of media in order to give students those skills. Um, with the idea of making them critical thinkers. That's the most important. Um, I want to make sure that when an ad comes on from Clive Palmer or somebody else, um, they know what is real and what's not real. And they can sit back and say, yeah, no, that's manipulative. Or, you know, give them those skills so that they're not 
they don't fall for used car salesmen or any of those sorts of, you know, um, promotional things that they get bombarded with. Well, that um, almost defines our our age, our current age is sort of there, all that stuff's out there. So how do you go about, you know, how do you do you sort of break it down and develop the skills little by little? And if so, how do you do that? What are you what are you looking at specifically? So what you look at is you work out what are the skills that this piece of this project or unit of work is assessing. Now, we don't do it like they used to do grammar where you get a book. These are the grammar things. You need to fill out the words. Uh, I mean, it, it was just death to any enjoyment of English at all. Uh so what we what you use now are live text. So there'll be a novel or a a, a nonfiction book. There'll be a, a TV show maybe or a film, and you use it to get the students to learn those skills. So one example, for instance, um, at the school I was at, they taught to kill a mockingbird in year 11 English. Now, this was in a, it was not an inner city school and it was in Queensland. How do you get students to be able to critically assess or even access to kill a mockingbird? Because there's all those things that you need to put in there. And what we really, at the end, we A, want them to learn to read a book, but we want them to come out with the at the end saying, yeah, no, racism's bad. You know, people should not be treated badly because of the colour of their skin. That's what we want them to learn. So what we would do is, or what I've always done, is I show the film Mississippi Burning, um, which is very confrontational. We talk about the civil rights movement. Um, we give them links for them to explore uh, different questions in the novel. Um, we ask them to think about, uh, they usually have, they'll have a writing task and generally the writing task is specific to a character or an issue that they then have to analyse. Lots of analysis. They have to analyse it. Um, and so by the time you get to the major assessment, which might be an essay, it may, I don't, I think we need to step away from the essay a lot now. You know, it could be a podcast. It could be a video. It could be any number of other things. Um, we want them to look at the book and understand how the writer was putting across what, was, what mattered to them. Uh, so and that's how you do it. So that one's going to add to this their reading skills. Um, it's going to certainly their viewing and listening skills when they're watching Mississippi Burning, and they're going to be asked to make comparisons between the film and the text. Um, and it's if there's a speaking assessment, it's going to work on that the speaking skills. Uh, so that's just an example. You use a piece of text to explore a bigger area or issue um, and 
get the students to come to their own conclusions about what they are able to do. So, so when you're explaining all of this, this is the for the students' activity, but then because your your focus is really on the teacher professional development, how does that work then? How do you strengthen the teacher skills? Okay, so first of all, if we're talking to out-of-field teachers, they've done their initial teacher education. You know, they are already teachers um, in their subject area. So you're not starting from scratch. Um, they They will understand when you use the term pedagogy. And so we, we would introduce that first as the five pedagogical skills. Is it, oh, it's a number. I didn't know there was a number. But what are the five? Yeah. Reading, writing, speaking, oh. listening, viewing. Okay. Yes. Got it. I'm back on track. Yep. These are the five skills that we are going to teach, that an English teacher is going to teach the students. So we would talk to them about those and look at how did how did those link to the areas that in their specialty what are the main areas in their specialty uh, so for instance what if you're a science teacher well i guess i'm a former science teacher once a science teacher always a science teacher but well once a teacher always a teacher yeah but no. Uh, a report. So what, what, you might write a report of an experiment that you've done, and then there's a certain genre conventions to that report that are kind of um, logical. And you might, you know, there's certain fields or areas of of the text that you might fill in in order to communicate an idea or or present an argument or offer evidence for something that sort of thing. And that's the thing I want to jump in on. The evidence. So one of the things that a science teacher would be bringing into their lesson planning is the idea of evidence. It's the idea of what evidence do you have to support that viewpoint? And then I guess Um, in science you'd find that evidence in the test tube, whereas I guess where do they find it in English? In the text. They find it. Yeah, they find it in the film or the novel or the poetry or um, their own exploration uh, to find evidence. Uh, So there's this constant thing with an English teacher when you're working with your students and going through their work and they make a comment, you said, where's your evidence? Where's your evidence? So the idea that you never make, um, what what I used to call them, um, something generalizations, unfounded generalizations. If you don't have evidence from the text or whatever, then sorry, you missed it. It's a very contemporary idea, this uh, unfounded generalizations, or that's happening all over well, town. It's, yeah, but oh, God, yeah. Sorry. Obviously, <laughs> there were some teachers out there who weren't doing their job properly, unfortunately. Um, Sadly, I don't know how some people got through. So in so getting to it, there will be things from there, like if it was a science teacher who had to pick up an English class, for instance, um, that idea of looking for evidence, but that's also a part of English teaching. Uh, we don't actually teach novels or poems, though we love them. 
we teach skills that we use the novels and poems to um, as a as a vehicle for the understanding. So a teacher coming, a teacher who's trained in other areas and they're coming to an English class for the first time, you would look at what are the skills that we want to learn. And, I mean, people often say, in, you know, out there, not teachers, you know, it's a waste of time reading these books. When are they ever going to need to do this? You know, English is just a waste of time. But what they don't understand is that there are critical thinking skills that English teachers are teaching, but we're using the texts as the vehicle uh, for uh, that learning. Um, and, and, I mean, hopefully we may find that they, you know, think, oh, actually, I really enjoyed that poetry. I might read that some more. Um, but it's the skills. And I, so we would be working with out-of-field teachers to help them to come to understand what those skills are, where they can look for um, help, you know, what's a good place to look for. We would be introducing them to this wonderful new world of online um, professional learning networks um, and all the things that will make them feel more confident that, yes, they're teachers, they know how to be a teacher, and you can, with all this support, you can be just as effective in an English class. Now, you seem very, very comfortable working digitally. Uh, that's really clear. We're having, we're having this moment on Zoom. Um, now, related very closely to equality is this idea of the digital divide. And I know you've, you're very um, enthusiastic about that area. So could you tell us more about what that is and, and why it's important? Uh, okay. So I, we, teachers were using the internet and technology prior to the pandemic. But the pandemic has accelerated that use. I reckon by about 10 years, it would have taken us on normal situation, maybe 10 years to get to where we got in 12 months. Um, but what it also highlighted was this thing called the digital divide, which is that not all students have access or teachers have access to digital technology. Um, I think I read somewhere that 250,000 Australian children did not have access to the internet at home or to a device. Um, they, just about all of them have access to a smartphone, but then schools go and ban smartphones and that's a little bit counterintuitive because it just makes it harder for those students. Um, I understand the safety issues very hard. Um, and when I'm talking with EdTech people, I am constantly saying to them, you can't do that. In K to 12, you have to be, it's got to be about privacy. It's got to be about, um, you know, safety on online. Um, but... Another, a young teacher who was 
it was her first year. I Yeah, her first year. It was her first year in 2021. And she told me the story of one of the boys in her class at 6 o'clock, 5 o'clock, 6 o'clock in the evening, had to walk out and go up a hill on the family's property because it was um, remote because that was the only place and time he could get a an internet connection with his phone to download the work he needed to do. Big, a big obstacle. Uh, but there, big obstacle, and in many places there are more obstacles. And I started talking about this in 2019 as a panel member at the Digital Innovations Festival that Victoria runs every year. Um, and then in the last two years I've run, I've, um, hosted panels of teachers talking about uh, the digital divide and what are we going to do about it? I mean, how it'll be awesome when we get universal internet. Um, they talk about getting a satellite up there. One of the things that I get really cranky about is when I hear new little ed techs um, run by really smart young people who think that nothing has changed in education in the 10 years since they left school. Um, and they go on about teachers not wanting to use digital and teachers not being technology and teachers. And that is such rubbish because I remember in the 90s when I started teaching, we didn't have the internet, but we did have computers. And we wrote reports on software and we were accustomed to Blackboard and a range of different um, learning management systems. Uh, and in the, the, in the last two decades, that's just grown. Um, I've learned, obviously, I've learned a lot from trying to run an online business. I've learned to use a lot of things that I wasn't able to use before. But teachers are not... Um, Luddites, teachers are familiar with technology. Do you think where do you think that comes from? Is it a cultural kind of myth or something like that? What, what it comes from, the belief that they're not or the fact that they are? Yeah, the belief that they're not. Well, um, I think, look, I think there's a, re a variety of reasons where it comes from. Um, one is the arrogance of youth. <laughs> and we know that because we did it as well. You know, we, no point saying we didn't because we did. We assumed that people who were older than us um, weren't up with current issues. So there's a little bit of that. Um, there's a lot about we want to solve a problem that existed when we were at school but they haven't spoken to any teachers, so they don't know that that actually is not a problem anymore. Mm. And what about the flip side uh, of that? The other, the other kind of perspective of the that, that teachers are getting on, and you know, there's a lot of activity digitally and other that teachers are doing. Absolutely. But yeah. so why why is that not known broadly? Um, okay, I think. Look, let's. Mm, just what you Let's reckon. Let's be perfectly honest. <laughs> well, yeah. There was, there was a brief time during the pandemic where adults had to stop and say, oh, wow, so this is what teachers do. 
Yeah, that's oh, right. Oh, my goodness. I um, And they do this all day with a whole range of other people's children. And they can't send them to their room. They can't say they won't get dessert. They can't. They have got to manage. And, I mean, an average teacher in Australia with um, a full-time table will have five classes generally. And each of those classes will have 25 to 28 students in it, generally speaking. This is not an unsupported generalisation because there's plenty of support for this. So that 525s, 125 students a day a teacher may have to manage. Um, real numbers. They're real numbers. And people have then, I mean, I, I get so angry with teacher bashing. I also get very angry with teenager bashing because um, I think teenagers are amazing. Um, and that's one of the points of teaching that I think gave me hope is when you realise that for your students, things that you had to worry about there, you know, sexuality, gender, races, none of that. It's like, no, why? Why would that be a problem? You know, you think, oh, my God, we have made progress. Um, so I think that's um, it's a general lack of respect and appreciation for teachers, for the teaching profession, which is sort of tied in with the fact that it is, you know, it is one of the industries that has a larger percentage of female members, our teachers, um, and they are stupid in some ways. I mean, people, parents would look and say, you've just taught all day and you're taking all that work home with you. Why? That's ridiculous. Why would you do a job like that? So you must be, there must be something wrong with you if that's what you aspire to. Um, so, yeah, I, part of it comes from that, that teachers, I, I've heard a text presenting ideas and they use the term, we have made it teacher-proof. Oh, dear, and that's think, un unfortunate. Oh. And you think, who are you? And you want us to pay for this? You want us to support this idea and share it with other educators? Teacher proof. Um, I think that's changed. Um, yes, I think on a larger scale, people had started to think, particularly if they had kids at home, um, as long as they don't use homes, the word homeschooling, because then I, my head wants to explode, because that's a completely different thing. Um, they were supervising their children's learning. And I think they started to realise that teachers did a lot. Um, and I think just because how things have changed um, over the last couple of years, people have talked a lot more about the caring professions and about um, industries where women are the majority and, and therefore their pay rates are lower. Um, it doesn't, in education, of course, teachers get paid the same, whether they're male or female. doesn't matter. You are paid on bands according to your experience. I don't know what they do in the private schools, but in public education, which is the one I care about the most. Um, 
But yes, I think things are changing and I just hope that it stays that way and doesn't go backwards again. Um, because I think teachers are the best people. I, they are the best people. Back, back to you and your kind of, you know, what, what you do, what are you, what are you hoping, what are your aims, your general aims? Okay. So, I mean, the top aim, of course, is to make good quality professional development available to teachers wherever they are. Now, there's been some good projects in that. Um, there are a couple of companies who provide tablets um, to uh, schools in Southeast Asia and Africa where there is no internet um, provision at all. And so they load them up with material, give them to the teachers, and then I think maybe once a month they're brought back um, and up all the other stuff is uploaded for a new thing. So there are people out there trying to, you know, to address this. Um, and are we, I will keep working at it because this is really important to me. I think education is the answer to all of the disasters that have happened. Um, from just specifically, so I have worked finishing off a short course. It was a free course to demystify the works of William Shakespeare to show, because every teacher who teaches English at some point is going to teach Shakespeare. Um, and if you're not a lit person, you're out of field, you might be scared about that. So this is sort of to demystify it all. So I've got cartoons in there. I've got a video uh, with Anne Boleyn's head coming off and spurting blood and bouncing off the page and, um, you know, uh, things being blown, Houses of Parliament being blown up. And I, had I hope you didn't, you didn't give us a spoiler alert then. That's <laughs> Um, and that one's actually called Shakespeare's Marketing Magic. So there's six modules, there's some cartoons, there's a couple of short videos, just little things to show that Shakespeare was not highbrow, Shakespeare was not elitist, and you don't need to worry about that. So finished um, getting that, just ready to market it, and my mum died. So uh, that wiped December off for me. Um and so we've we're starting, we're putting, we've been putting that out over the last couple of days. It's free. It's a lot bigger than we first thought. Um, but we said it was going to be free, so it'll be free and it'll always be free. Um, and but I'm proud of it. I think it's a good introduction to, you know, for teachers to there are some laugh out loud moments, you know. Um, I like that. Uh, what I'm working on at the moment, which we want to get out for term two, so we need to get it out in the next couple of weeks, is a coaching, group coaching for teachers, out-of-field English teachers. So using the HSL standards and the framework, those two um, things, uh, as the basis of um, putting some teacher, yeah, uh, as the basis for what, we cover um, and coaching for out-of-field English teachers. So that's what I'm sort of sorting out at the moment, trying to get the website finished and add the buttons and all the links and make sure it all works and um, stuff like that. So, yeah. 
You're listening to Perspectives in Parryville. You talked before about being having trained as a science teacher, um, and science um, has fitted more comfortably with a dominant um, societal understanding of what works and what doesn't. Um, those of us from the humanities and English teachers, we don't divide everything up quite so clearly. And so if you, uh, if you want to divide ideas, um, that's an, an English teacher's never going to do that for you because we go back and forward and in and out and everything's connected and the same thing can be said in three different categories. Or, um, and I, I understand that that's what annoys people about English teachers. Um, there is no right or wrong. Uh, there's only ways of presenting your thoughts and information. Um, and it is hard to, and that's why we have problems with a lot of assessment because these divisions are not clear. Um, and in the humanities, um, we don't, uh, yeah, we don't sort of do the, um, what did we used to call it? Um, when they, they shut doors and it starts with the C, compartmentalizing we're not good at compartmentalizing what's the um, so opposite when we're what's the opposite of that or if it is an opposite what's the other well, approach the other way is that we set a piece of work we set a unit of work and we set an assessment task and we may be assessing three different things and we may be doing a formative assessment in one of the other skills during that unit, but nobody actually understands that's what we've been doing. Um, you know, we've got the students to talk about an idea. Um, and that is a skill. Being able to articulate an idea is a skill. But nobody might, other people looking on may not realise that that is one of the things that we've done. Um, and so... I, and I think one of the things that gives me a lot of uh, hope is that we are beginning finally to understand that neurodiversity is normal. You have That's to you have normal. to give us a definition for those members of the audience. What what does that look like? What's neurodiversity? So neuro so let's talk about the ADHD disorder. It's not attention, a disorder. Attention deficit. Uh, attention hype. Um, attention deficit hyperactivity. Um, de, de, um, disorder. But you're saying it's not a disorder, but it's a it's a condition it's not, maybe. It's not a disorder. It's a different way of approaching knowing and learning. But for all of these years, we've had one understanding of what a good brain does. And it is patriarchal. And it is, has come down for a lot of years. And I think we are managing finally, I see a lot of young women who are challenging these ideas. Um, and 
we need to understand that all of these what I call disorders are just different ways that brains are wired and that there is no one way that's right all the time. Um, and that, I think, is going to be super important moving forward when we look at how many kids have we disenfranchised simply because they didn't fit in this particular mould. You know, it's just wrong. Um, and testing, NAPLAN, as you can be, given what I've just said, that's why we hate it so much. But look, I think given and all the things I've said, I think that is finally giving people the um, permission. You've got to speak, say, okay, actually, it's not because I'm a bad teacher. It's because I understand, I didn't understand that I can do these things differently. That what is, that equality doesn't mean giving the, everybody exactly the same thing. It means giving everybody an equal amount of support in whatever they need. Um, and I think these understandings and the, uh, the um, access that technology brings is going to help in the future as, as we do uh, provide understandings and help students who are, you just think they're not naughty, they're not, they're just, their brain works differently. Um, and I think, the, I think these are good things. I think these understandings mean that uh, teachers are also able not to blame themselves if what they're doing doesn't work with some students because it doesn't matter what you did, it won't work with that student in the current system we have to deal with. Do you see things improving for teachers in the near, long, in the near future? And, and if so, in what way? What's the key to unlocking the, the kind of improvements for teachers? Um, I, the jury's still out on that one. Um, I think a lot's going to depend on what happens in the next 18 months, two years. Um, now that we're coming out of the pandemic, what, what changes? I mean, we've found out that we can do things differently and that they can work. And so um, if, if we are pushed, if we keep these right-wing um, focused governments um, trying to dictate what schools do and they want to push us back to where we were, then I would be, I would weep. Um, What's but the alternative? If, what's what? What else? What's an alternative to that? Well, I, the bottom line alternative to that is stop banging, stop bashing teachers. They're really smart people. Um, they're constantly learning because if you're a teacher, then you are a learner, and you're constantly learning. And teachers managed to do something during that pandemic. I mean, in Three months in the first term after things went crazy in March, teachers who had never been trained to do this turned entire curriculums online 
and started teaching. Now, it may not have been the same as it was, and some students did better at it, some didn't, but we learned so much. And if teachers can be given the respect that their knowledge and skill deserves, then we can do wonderful things, you know, get onto Twitter for a while and follow some teachers because what's happening out there is just wonderful. The one last thing I would want to say is that school, K to 12, is dependent on three things, not two. There's the school leadership, there's the teachers, and importantly, the parents. And if those three work together, then you will get the best possible results. Um, we don't we don't delineate often about between the teacher and the parent, and I think parental involvement is really important. Um, and yeah, it's exciting. I, I'm I've seen what's happened in the last couple of years, and I am really excited about what's going to happen in the next couple of years. I remain optimistic when we support teachers. In this episode, I chatted with Carolyn Newell, an English teacher and international educator. You can find more about this episode in the show notes, including links to We Teach Well and Carolyn's Teacher Professional Development Forums and other presentations. Thank you for listening to Perspectives in Parryville. Thank you.